Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. A few years ago, I was part of a Christian entrepreneurship, kind of like a Shark Tank program, but it was called The Lions, because it was Christian. And as part of that program, they put us through a bunch of team building exercises, and there was one particular one that has stuck with me, really impacted me up until today. And what they did was they broke the class into small groups and they said, each of you represents a small village that is dependent on orange crops to survive. And every year, all the villages go up the river to the market to sell their oranges. And that's how they survive as a community. And so they said, you got 20 minutes to use the resources and tools at your disposal to build a basket that can contain as many oranges as possible for your village, all right? So they set us off on this task and, uh, you know, we're scrambling to, to build the best basket that we can. And we had, you know, some, some pieces of wood and we had some nails and, and we had some like a rope or glue or something. And, you know, so we're, spending all this time focusing on building our best basket. So the facilitator says, time's up. So now he goes around the groups and he inspects our extremely flimsy, pathetic baskets, as you can imagine. And he says, well done. You've all built some sort of basket and you'll be able as a village to take X amount of oranges to the market. He says, but... I never said you couldn't collaborate. Why is it that you, group that had the the wooden pieces and the nails and you had a pair of scissors, why didn't you think to ask that group that had a hammer to hammer your nails? And this group over here that had the, the wood and the glue and the rope, but you had a hammer, why didn't you ask this group over here to borrow their scissors that you could cut the rope and, and, and tighten your basket up. And so he said, if you would have all thought selflessly, you actually had all the resources that you needed for every group to flourish. But because you thought selfishly, each of you is only able to bring this small amount of oranges. And so thinking selfishly made it kind of a negative sum game or, or like a, like a, uh, a zero sum game that everyone kind of just broke even. But if you would have thought selflessly, it would have been a positive sum game. Everyone would have won. And it so impacted me because I thought, I genuinely never thought to help somebody else or to ask for help. I only focused on my little basket. And so I, I want to talk to you today about stewardship, the stewardship of our gifts and resources. This is our sixth message in the series on the book of 1 Peter called This Is Who We Are. And we're looking at what our group identity is as the people of Jesus, because what brain science tells us is that your group identity determines your character and behavior more than any other single factor. And so how I think that translates into the church is that... (laughs) All the surveys tell us that, that a majority of Americans call themselves born-again Christians, and then you look at uh, the lives of those same people, and they're indistinguishable 
from people who would not make that claim. And I think part of the problem is that while you may know who you are in Christ as a person, it seems like we don't know who we are in Christ as a people. And so what happens is we're drawing our group identity more from our culture than we are from Christ. And so Peter speaks into that in this letter, his letter to the exiles in Babylon. And so this series is really about the theology of the people of God. And we're looking at seven statements about who we are and what we do as a people from this letter. And so the theme for this morning is that we are people who steward well because we are selfless. We are people who steward well because we're selfless. Our passage today is 1 Peter 4. 1 to 11. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow the notes on there. We have that every week, if you didn't know. But we're going to read our passage today. There's a lot to unpack here about what it means to be a people of stewardship. And it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the flesh, uh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what does this passage have to do with us being a people of stewardship? We have to do a little work to get into Peter's mindset here. Peter, that's Jesus' right-hand man, the apostle Peter, he wants to give us a way of thinking. He says that if we're able to think in this way, we will have the power to live out the rest of our lives in accordance to the will of God. Does that sound good? So it's like, it sounds like something you want. <laughs> One person does. Thank you. I heard that. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that what we're looking for as, as believers? Don't we, you know, <laughs> part of our hearts at least should be crying out to the Lord. How do I actually live this out? And Peter says he's got a way of thinking that he wants us to adopt that will actually empower us to help live it out. And so the way that he explains it is that he contrasts these two ways of thinking. There's the way of Jesus and there's the way of the nations or the Gentiles. Jesus displays one way of thinking 
one set of assumptions and the nations, the Gentiles display another way of thinking, another set of basic assumptions. And if we want to live according to the will of God as a people, we need to think the way that Jesus thought. And so Peter says his way of thinking was displayed in the fact that he suffered in the flesh. Because anyone who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. And you say, what in the world does that mean, Peter? And this is where a classic Bible tip is really helpful. All right, Bible study tip. This will, it's, it's, it's an oldie but a goodie. Whenever you encounter a therefore in scripture, you should ask what it's there for. All right? Cringy, I know, but really helpful. Okay, because this passage begins, since therefore which means everything that follows is a conclusion. It's an application of what's come before. So you really have to know what came before in order to understand what he's saying. And if you don't, you're going to miss the entire point of the passage. And in this case, the therefore points back to chapter 3, verse 18, which says this. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And you can see some of that same language repeated in, in, in chapter four. But that is the basic reality that undergirds everything that we're looking at today. So we have to keep that in mind. And so Peter's point is that Jesus is displaying a different way of thinking than the world by the fact that he was willing to suffer on our behalf. Why did Jesus suffer? It says, for our sins. Why did he suffer for our sins? It says that he might bring us to God and make us alive in the spirit. That's good news. So if you follow that logic, okay, he's saying that Jesus showed that he had ceased from sin because he displayed a selfless, sacrificial love in how he offered his body and how he used his time on earth. And he's saying that anyone who lives like that similarly shows that they have ceased from sin. That's the logic that Peter's using. But you ask, how does that work? Because Jesus never sinned. How could Jesus cease from sin when Jesus never sinned? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, here's what Peter's saying. Sin is a master, not a mistress. What do I mean by that? I think a lot of times we think of sin as behaviors. We think of it as things that we do, things that we flirt with, that we dabble with, that we just need to kind of stop doing and we'll be free of it. Everything will be okay. But that's, that's actually not how the Bible conceives of sin. The Bible conceives of sin, not just as behaviors, but as a power that dominates a person. And the word Peter uses here for sin, it's really interesting. It's actually, he's actually personifying it. This is how the dictionary explains Peter's meaning. It says that the way he's using the word sin is sin personified as a destructive and depraved principle, reigning over unbelievers and persisting in believers, especially a slave master doling out payment with the currency of death and decay. A slave master. So here's how we have to think of sin. 
in general, but in this, in this passage in particular, that sin is not just a set of harmful behaviors. Sin is a slave master. It's not just something we flirt with and we know it's a bit naughty, but we can, you know, we can cut it off and end it. No, no, no. This is something that it has power over you. And so Peter's saying that when Jesus was willing to selflessly suffer for other people, for us to bring us to the father, what he was showing is that he was not subject to the slavery of sin. He was not under the domination of sin, but he was in service to God. And so if we're willing to suffer for him, then we're showing we're also not under slavery to sin, but we're in service to God. It's kind of a complex logic that he's using there, but we're going we're gonna to get into more of what that means because the rest of the passage, verses one and two, kind of are his thesis statement, and then the whole rest of it just explains uh, what he was saying. And so sin is not just something we do, but Peter says it's something that we serve. We all live our lives in service to something. Doesn't matter if you don't consider yourself a religious person. Doesn't matter if you think you're a rebellious renegade who, you know, bows to no man. Every single human being is in service to someone or something. We can't help it because there, there, there's something at the core of our hearts that can't help but live relentlessly trying to attain something. And here's the reality. You serve whatever you most desire. You serve what you most desire. The desire that you shape a life, your life around is what you serve. And whatever you ultimately serve, the way biblically to talk about that is, that's what you worship. Whatever you're putting in your life to, as if to say, if I don't get that thing, I may as well not be here. That's what you worship. So how can you tell what you really desire, what you really serve. Because I think a lot of the time, if you're like me, there's been moments in your life where you think, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Of course, I desire God above everything else. I know I've got these areas of my life that I need to sort out. But really, you know, if it came down to it, someone put a gun to my head, I would choose God over all those things. And we think that. But as I thought about that, you know, when I first got married, I, I, I was entered into this school of character called marriage and began to learn lots of things about myself. And I realized, you know, I've been treating God a little bit like, okay, God, you're number one in my life, but you're at the back of the line. So you're number one, God, but let me just see to all these other things first and I'll get to you at the end. It's a bit like saying, you know, I love my family. My family's number one. I love my wife. I'd do anything for my wife. But then I never actually spend time with my wife. What I'm living out shows that what I desire is not what I think I desire. So how does your life reflect what you believe you desire? How you invest your life reveals what you truly value. How you invest your life reveals what you truly value. So how do you know what you actually serve versus what you think you serve? Follow the money. Follow, and I don't just mean finances. I mean 
Where and how are you investing yourself? Your time, your affection, your, your, your actual money, your gifts, your, your body. Follow the money of your life. And if you follow where you invest yourself, it will show you what you actually desire and what you actually serve despite what you think you do. <laughs> and it's not a pretty picture most of the time. And so here's where we get this idea of stewardship in this passage, because one of the roles of, we're talking about service and being servants to God. Well, one of the roles of servants and slaves in the ancient world was as managers of households, as stewards. And so to steward something means to hold something in trust for another. All right, so historically that would mean looking after things until the rightful owner or the rightful ruler returned. And, and there's several of Jesus's parables that illustrate uh, what a steward was. And so all the great house, this was something that they all understood in the ancient world. Uh, and we even have this a little bit today in, in terms of uh, charities and trusts, that trustees are, in, are entrusted to steward the funds of that uh, organization and apply them in the right way. And so all the great households of the ancient world would have had a steward of the finances and resources of the household, of the family. And typically that steward would be an enslaved person, an, an indentured servant. And so the word household in Greek is oikos. It's the word that we get economy from. And the word for the steward, the manager of the household was oikonimos, economist. And so that's actually the word that Peter uses when he says, be good stewards. He's saying, be good economists. That puts an interesting slant on this passage. The job of the household economist is to rightly apportion and invest the resources of the household for maximum flourishing. And so as Peter's contrasting, he's contrasting slavery to sin versus service to God, and he's comparing two different economies. Two different economies. Do we have any economists in the room? Yeah. I knew that hand would go up. That's a good one. There's different forms of economies and different kinds of economies operate on different fundamental principles. And so Peter's comparing two different economies with two completely different fundamental principles. He's comparing the economy of selfishness with the economy of selflessness. So, when you're dealing with economies, you're dealing with resources. So what are the resources at our disposal in this life? Well, Genesis 1 says that we are created in his image or his image bearers. And so in a sense, we are stewards of the whole creation. That's our vocation as human beings. But in particular, for each of us as individuals and, 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 and as family units, we're talking about our bodies. We're talking about our things. And we're talking about our time. Time, of course, is a resource. And so Peter says the nations of the world, they operate in a particular economy, and it's the economy of selfishness. And he says how they choose to spend their resources is like this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And you say, Peter, that's not very nice. 
There's plenty of, and, and, and here's the thing, you don't have to be a Christian to live out a, a ethical and a, a, a good life. But without the therefore that, that Peter's given us, you have to ask if a person says, you know what, given the fact that flesh is all there is, and I've got a certain amount of time on this earth, and when I'm dead, I'm gone, and I can't come back, who are you to tell me not to live it up? Who are you to tell me not to orient my entire life around getting the maximum pleasure, the maximum enjoyment out of the time that I have here? And you might say, well, that's, that's selfish. But if Richard Dawkins is right, then our bodies are governed by selfish genes, which are, their only purpose is to survive and reproduce. And so Sigmund Freud says, that's why it's all about sex. It's our instinct to survive and reproduce. And so at base, what you see in human nature is exactly what Peter's talking about. Not much has changed. And you could say that this is a life invested in self-centeredness, in selfishness. And you know what? Here's the next point. If flesh is ultimate, selfishness is a wise investment. If flesh is the ultimate thing, Selfishness is a wise investment. If you take the assumptions of the economy that the world is in, it's the wisest possible investment. And so if that's the way that the, the, the economy of selfishness works, all right, we know that there's altruism. We know that there's, you know, there's philanthropy and all those things, but there's even a growing awareness now that, that somehow human beings are stewards of the creation and we need to take care of this planet. And so Gen Z in particular really cares about that. And, and it impacts the voting and all those kinds of things. But here's the thing, those, those impulses, as, as good and true and wonderful as they are, they tend not to get very far and tend not to be very effective when our whole economy is built on the principle of selfishness. And so, no wonder, Peter says, the world is surprised when they begin to meet people who live by a different set of principles. When they begin to meet people and they say, you guys wait for marriage to have sex? Or at least that's what you believe? Like, what's that about? <laughs> why, why in the world would you withhold yourself from this great thing until, you know, why would you, why would you not... Test the car before you buy it. You know, like that's an expression of a certain operating principle, isn't it? All right. And so I remember when I got married as a, as a 21 year old and I was still in college and all my college classmates, they were surprised that I was married at such a young age. It was, it was clearly like mind blowing to them. And it's exactly what Peter's talking about. But here's the thing. Peter says it's not long before that surprise begins to shift into annoyance. And that annoyance begins to shift into disdain. Because there's nothing more annoying than a good person. Right? There's nothing more inconvenient than a principled person in an economy of selfishness. And it's not long ago that Christians were, you know, when it comes to like sexual ethics and stuff, Christians were this curious kind of quaint, you know, like, oh, isn't that sweet? 
but it's, it's dumb. No one really does that, you know. Now it's, it's shifted from that, and, and especially when it comes to the, the question of sexual ethics, Christians are not just quaint, they're, they're somehow dangerous. They're, they're a repressive force to, to society's, you know, advancement. And so it's interesting that Peter says that surprise turns into, it turns malignant. They malign you. And when you look at the Greek word there, he's actually saying they blaspheme you. It's literally the word blaspheme. What's that about? He's not saying that, that, you know, we're equal to God. What he's saying is that you can't badmouth the bride without badmouthing the groom. So when you're living out, you're, you're actually, I, I don't think we're talking about calling out the sins of the church because the Bible's very comfortable with doing that. Just read, you know, the biggest section of the Bible called the prophets. That's basically what it's all about, okay? No, this is talking about when the church is living out its identity and its principles and its purpose, and yet it turns to disdain and, and, and blasphemy because it's hatred towards an accurate representation of God's character. And so you badmouth the bride, you badmouth the groom, and throughout this series, we've been talking about this, this kind of friction that we should expect when we actually do live out who we are as a people. Most of the time, we're experiencing discomfort and friction because we're not living it out. But when we do live it out, Peter says, you're still going to experience friction. And it's because in the kingdom, we're operating within a completely different economic system. All right? Now, here's the thing. Here's our guiding principle. The next point, if spirit not flesh. If spirit is ultimate, then selflessness is a wise investment. If spirit is ultimate, selflessness is a wise investment because if the spirit of God is ultimate and not the flesh, not just the material world, then it means everything comes from him and belongs to him. If there really is a creator God, everything comes from him and ultimately belongs to to him. And so how that translates to our lives is that no matter how successful we are, no matter how ingenious, no matter how, you know, what our pretensions or no matter what inventions we we come up with, at most, we are stewards entrusted with what God owns. And if that's true, what it means is everything gets flipped around and selfishness is not really in our best interest. Selflessness now becomes the best investment principle. This is why in verse 7, Peter switches up the contrast. And now he, in verse 7, he begins to outline, here is the basic guiding principle of the economics of the kingdom. He says, because the end of all things is at hand. Because of that, what it looks like to be a wise steward of our resources is it's completely different. Given that the king who's entrusted you with everything that you have is coming back. What does that mean for how you spend and how you look after what he's given you now? Given the fact that, that he owns it all, he's coming back and you are going to live forever. What does it mean for how you live your life and how you, how you invest the things and the body and the emotions and everything that he's given you. And so Peter repeats what he says in the earlier chapters. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, get a hold of yourself 
and wake up. That's a more kind of a vernacular translation. It's time to wake up to the reality of who he is and who we are. And when you see that you're actually tested, that you're free, that you're accountable, what it means is that everything counts. And so the conclusion is this, the next point, that those who no longer serve sin think as selfless stewards. Those who no longer serve sin think as selfless stewards. And so if you notice in Peter's description, when he goes on then in verses eight and following to describe what it means to be a wise steward of the resources that we've been entrusted, everything is centered towards others. Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. Offer your gifts to one another. You see that, how it's flipped? The economy of selfishness now becomes an economy of selflessness. And instead of centering your life on gaining as much affection, as much sensuality, as much pleasure for yourself as possible, Peter says, in this economy, above all, love each other earnestly. And within this economy, it's, it's a, the kingdom of God is very paradoxical because we think within the operating principles of this world, okay? So here's, 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 there's several paradoxes, but here's the first paradox. Only by loving selflessly can you receive the love that you actually crave. And if you picture a marriage, marriage is on my mind because Laura Mounts and Eric Gensel just got married yesterday. Woo, it was a great celebration. And, you know, picture a marriage where each spouse is intent and obsessed with getting the love and affection that they crave. That's their center. That's their focus. That's what they're doing every single day. Well, you probably know that what happens is neither of them end up feeling loved because they're operating within a, a, a selfish economy. But if you flip that around, then now you have a spouse, both spouses constantly obsessed and seeking to love the other person. What happens is both receive the love that they actually desired. It's a positive sum game. Positive sum games means everybody wins. And so I, I heard this profound. I was listening to a, a podcast today earlier this week. It wasn't even Christian at all, but the, the person said something absolutely profound that I've been meditating on all week. He said, I'm not designed to see myself. I thought, wow. Yeah. Apart from the help of other people and other things and, and mirrors back to ourselves, you're not actually designed to see yourself. You're not, and how would, I, how, would I, how, how I would translate that into our passage here is that we're not primarily designed to see and look after our own needs, but we're primarily designed to see other people and look after and care for their needs. And by doing that, we actually receive the love and the, the, the being seen that we all actually desire. 
I saw that in Battelle. Battelle is a ministry that I grew up in that helps people out of long-term addiction. And the way it works is it's all peer-led. And so you have guys coming in, women coming in off the streets and, you know, worldly wisdom would tell you, well, this person needs to focus on themselves for a couple of years, get their some, you know, get themselves sorted out. And once they're healed and whole, well, then they can start ministering to other people. And actually you see the kingdom at work in that as soon as people come in, after a few months, they begin to be entrusted with, with certain care for other people, whether it's making coffee or tea for the brand new person, or it's staying up with them while they're having convulsions and, and they're, they're coming off of drugs, cold turkey. And what you see is as they focus on the needs of others, they themselves start to be healed. It's this paradoxical economy of selflessness. It's by loving others that we actually receive the love that we crave. And so, okay, what about our, our personal resources? Well, Peter says this in the next verse, he says, show hospitality to one another. And the word hospitality in Greek, it's literally love of stranger. Xenophilia, love of stranger. And so, Here's another paradox. Jesus said this, you want to be rich? Give it all away, right? He said it to the, to, to the, the, the rich, the young rich ruler. He said, you, you, you've got everything, but you lack one thing and you can only get it by giving everything away. And that's the exact opposite of what our nations clearly believe, right? We operate typically under the assumption that to get rich, to be blessed, what you do is you accumulate as much as possible and then you protect it by any means, right? And so we spend untold amounts of time and and sweat and blood and work and effort doing exactly that, accumulating. And then, you know, you spend more time protecting what you've accumulated than it took you to accumulate it, (laughs) right? And so what if, what if we were a community that rather, being, rather than being obsessed with our own needs and protecting our own resources, we focused on meeting the needs of others and showing hospitality to others, showing love to strangers. And the heart of that is that it's, it's loving and giving to those who you don't expect to pay you back. Jesus actually says that is the way that you're actually going to accumulate blessings that never run out and that no thief can ever steal. It's backwards. You know, and I was even thinking this, this morning, I have to thank and bless you all as a church, particularly here in Bethlehem, because it's now been, I think it's been about six months since Pastor Grubby passed on the, the baton to me and, and we've moved into transition time. And you all have been so welcoming and so graceful. You have shown hospitality uh, to me and Selena, and I'm grateful for that. And <laughs> what I was thinking of this morning is there are some visible changes in the room. Turn the lights down a little bit. All right. The music's a little bit louder. There's cafe seating over here to my right. All right. And for some of us, that's unexpected and a little bit uncomfortable, maybe seems out of place. But I was thinking about hospitality. We believe in church as the family of God. And when you show hospitality, what it means is suffering a little discomfort for the blessing and the welcoming of others. Of, of 
strangers even. And so the, the, the point, the point of doing things like this that we tested out in McCungie for a good two years before we brought them over here is that what we found was setting things up like a living room, like it's family, it, it, it creates a little bit of a warm atmosphere that when people walk in, they feel like, oh, I kind of feel welcome here. And so if we're doing it right, if we're doing family right, then we should all be slightly uncomfortable with something. None of us should be 100% comfortable with everything that we do as a family. Because sometimes, you know, grandparents and parents need to suffer some discomfort and annoyance for the sake of the children. And sometimes the children and the teens need to suffer some annoyance and discomfort and uncoolness for the sake of parents and grandparents, right? Now, you experience that in your family. Oh, I could tell a great story, but I don't have time. So, Using your talents and your time is the next thing that Peter gets into. Well, he says when we, we, we usually use our talents and our giftings to secure our own flourishing and that of our own families. But Peter says, first thing he says is interesting. He says, as each one has been given a gift. So what that means is every single one of us has been given a gift. There's no ungifted person here. You may look at another person if you have a personality like mine, you look at things in other people and you're like, oh man, I wish I, I just don't have that skill. I wish I had that skill. And you can beat yourself up about it. And I do that sometimes, especially like really handy guys, you know, Mike, thank you for helping me so many times and other people. But I have gifts that Mike appreciates that, that he doesn't have. And the same is true for every single one of us that we each have a gift that is unique within the body of Christ and that each of us is actually called to bring, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So what does it look like to steward your gifts for God? Well, Peter says it's about gaining the mentality of the economist of God's household, of being a steward in God's household, the servant that's left in charge of his resources. So I think it means a couple things. Number one, it means using your gifts A gift is the kind of thing that you can only have when you give it away. Another paradox. You can't just sit on your gift. When you sit on a gift and you, you hoard it, what happens is you're not treating it as a gift. You're treating it as a, as a, as a commodity to be accumulated, right? And so you, you actually turn that thing from a gift to a commodity. So, that's not a wise investment in light of eternity. But second of all, you, you, you have to use it, but you also have to use it for the sake of others. Your gift is for the good of the family. And Jesus says, what's good for the family is also good for you. When you pour out love for others, you receive the love that you actually crave. And so that is the economy that we find ourselves in, in the kingdom of God. And when you do that, watch what happens. Here's what Peter goes on to say. He says, when you operate in your, your gifts and you, you use them selflessly for the sake of others, what happens is now your words and your actions take on a whole new meaning. He says, now those of you who speak, you speak as if speaking the oracles of God. And those of you who serve, you serve out of the power that only God can give. And so, okay, speaking, yes, that applies to preaching and teaching, and it applies to Sunday school and, and, and any word gifts within the church. But I think it also applies to conversations. 
Imagine if you approached your daily life and, and the resource of your words, because words have power, remember, there's power of life and death in the tongue, James tells us. What if you approached the use of your words as if you were a bearer of the oracles of God? As if you were an economist in the house of God, you were a steward of God's gift. And remember, God created the universe through his word. What does it mean for us to go through life thinking about the words that we use? Might it, might it change the language that you choose to use? Might it change the way you talk about other image bearers of the living God? When we think as an economist in God's economy of selflessness, it transforms our speech and it also transforms our service, our actions. Because here's the thing, he's he's not talking to pastors here. He's talking to the whole body of believers. And so whether you're a pastor or, or a plumber or a painter or a policeman or, you know, anything that starts with a P, when you think like a steward, now every part of your work becomes service to God. You know what? I'm not just this job by accident. God has entrusted me with this work. He's entrusted me to benefit the common good and the church and my family. And by doing that, I glorify him. So do you see how the economics of selflessness, they they just turn everything around. Imagine if we live this out as a community. We are people of stewardship because we steward well out of selflessness. And we do that because this is the gospel that Jesus brought to us. The gospel that he is, that he selflessly poured himself out for the sake of us sinners. And so here's the thing, the last thing. For this truth to avail, you have to be armed with it. Peter says at the start, arm, he doesn't just say, understand this way of thinking. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Jesus displayed. So he's saying this, this, we're, we're in a battle. This is a weapon and a weapon is useless if you don't have it on you. A weapon is useless if it's in the other room when you need it. And so, We have to have this weapon at our side, ready to be deployed. But here's another paradox. He uses this militaristic term, this this weapon term, but this is a weapon like no other because when you use this weapon, rather than bringing harm and destruction to another person, this weapon means selflessly loving in sacrificial love to another person. That's actually what he's talking about. He says the weapon is thinking with the same mentality that Jesus had. What did Jesus do? He poured himself out even to the point of death on the cross. And so again, it's a topsy-turvy paradoxical kind of weapon. When you use this weapon in the face of sin that's trying to dominate you, Peter says this is going to give you the power to live out your life in accordance with God's will. It's by employing selflessness. Stewarding everything that he's given you for the sake of the good of others. So I, I, I finished with this question and I wonder if we can 
finish with a, a, a chorus so the musicians can come back up. But I, I want to ask you this question. How are you stewarding your life? If you were to follow the money of how you're investing your time, your body, your words, your work, what, are, what would it reveal about what you truly value? In Christ, we are not those who live to satisfy the flesh. Why? Because that is not a wise investment in light of eternity. We steward well because the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to be selfless. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for the love that led you to the cross, that led you to sacrifice your very life for our sake. And Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here or there's anyone watching this now or listening to it later who has never received the gift of your love of your favor and your forgiveness. Well, give them the grace to do that right now. And if that's you, I encourage you. He's stretching out his hand to you and he's done everything necessary to pay the cost of all of your sin. All of your debt is cleared. It's paid for. Step into a totally different world come and join me at my table. And you can do that by bringing yourself to him and saying, Jesus, forgive me. I'm so sorry for all the ways that I've lived selfishly. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, that you love me so much that you were willing to die on the cross. Thank you that because of you and your resurrection, I can have a brand new life. And Jesus, I want to live my life following you for the rest of my days. Amen. May it be so. And the moment you're part of a new family. And so Lord, would you give us that same mentality that you had to be selfless stewards of all that you've entrusted us with? Lord, that we pour ourselves out love and pour ourselves out in earnest love, that we would be hospitable to each other and to strangers, Lord, that we would use our gifts to serve others. And that by that, Lord, we would glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.